All right, just a couple things before we get started. Um, for those of you that have been play, praying for Pastor Youssef that we talked about last week, latest I've heard is that um, they've decided to stay his, uh, his potential execution, and instead it looks like they're going to retry him. Um, and so if you could just be praying for him, I can't imagine what it would be already three times to refuse to deny Jesus Christ and now to be brought up a fourth time. And so the thing we talked about last week is, is just really pray that he would not fear, that he really would be empowered by the Spirit to not fear, and that he would then be faithful, that he would be bold. Um, the only way in this that, uh, that Jesus doesn't look spectacular is if he recants. And I can't imagine what that means for he and his family and his local church, but Boy, if, if, if they fold and he stands firm, it's what we talked about with Smyrna last week, it just absolutely will propel the gospel through all of, I, uh, I almost said Iran, it's actually Iran, I got corrected, so forgive me, Iran, and, um, but even to, if for whatever reason God calls him to even make that ultimate sacrifice of dying, Jesus still wins. And we can never forget that, that we, we serve a Jesus that just that can't win. And so that's what we've been going through. We've been going through this, uh, just these, these churches in Ephesus. And the first one we talked about are churches in Revelation. And we talked about Ephesus, the church that had, had wandered from its first love. And that was in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. And just talked about how important it is to keep Jesus Christ and his message at the center of our lives. We talked about how just the, the way that it, we just slowly can get into this point where we can even focus on good things and slowly start to drift away from Jesus. And Jesus gave us the solution to it. And the solution, he said, is, is remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. In other words, remember these amazing things, these, these monuments of my grace in your life. Repent. And we talked about repentance being turning and going the other way and coming back to Jesus and doing it like you did when you first came to know Jesus. Doing it under the power of the Spirit. Because we don't, we don't have the power and capacity to do it on our own. God has to work through us. We are insufficient to be able to do it. And then last week we talked about Smyrna. And just a church that when, we not, when we're not sure what to do. When these things just hit these difficult times. We pray. And so I don't care where you're at in life right now. The mark of God's people when we're not sure what to do. This church that was suffering and persecuted is that we're not sure what to do for a church like that because that's not us. We pray. And that's what we talked about, just the importance of that. And so this week what we're going to do is we're going to be looking at the next church, Pergamum. But if you could, could you just stand up with me and I'm going to read 2, 12 through 17. Let's just honor the Lord by, uh, by reading the word together and preparing ourselves to, to hear with what God has for us. And the angel or the messenger of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, 
And I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. God, would you please help me today to be able to teach your word? Like, I don't, I totally believe, Father, I'm insufficient of myself. And so would your spirit please be powerful and just enable me to be able to speak on your behalf? And then, God, would you give ears to hear? We're coming in, all of us, from different weeks and different places, and there's all kinds of things that are going to hinder us, I believe, Father, from hearing what you want to teach out of this text. And so would you open our ears, open our hearts, God, and would we leave completely different people? In your precious name we pray. Amen. All right, have a seat. Well, here's this church, Pergamum. Pergamum was, uh, if you don't, don't forget this, is that it started in Ephesus. That's probably where it landed. And there's this, these seven churches go in a circle like this. And so we're working our way up. We started in Pergamum. Then we went to Smyrna. And if you, or we started in Ephesus, then to Smyrna. And if you'll see, you can kind of see where Pergamum is. Ephesus would have been further south. And so Pergamum is working up a little bit higher. It's about another 40, 50 miles from Smyrna. And it, what would happen is, again, we talked about this, this letter would just be taken to all those seven churches. Legend says that Pergamum was, was built uh, not by Hercules, but actually by Hercules' son. Um, and it's probably one of the major capitals of, of Asia Minor. In fact, not only was it a major capital of Asia Minor, but for about 250 or 300 years, the Romans really entrusted them with giving oversight to that area. They, they had lots of their military there, so it was a, it was a pretty major city. But when, when John wrote this letter, what really set this this place apart was what their namesake was. Pergamum means parchment. And if you know anything about parchment, it's just animal skins. Generally, it was goat or sheep, and they would take and they would stretch it and dry it so that they could write on it. Now, this one's for free. I'm going to give you this. The reason that this city became so important is because Egypt used to also manufacture something called papyrus, which was also something that was written on. Well, Egypt thought, we're going to make a ton of money off of Rome. And so they withheld all of their papyrus from Egypt, and pretty soon Pergamum saw, man, we can make some money. And so they started to sell all of their parchment to Rome, so much so their, their parchment became famous all over the then-known Roman world, and they actually started to accumulate for themselves a library which had about 200,000 volumes. Now, we're like, what's the big deal? But that was before the printing press. Can you imagine handwriting 200,000 volumes? It was a massive library. This city was known for education. They were a very intelligent culture. And probably what happened, the reason their library got taken away is that Antony, who was also a part of this Roman Empire, as a gift to Cleopatra, took that entire library and moved it down to Alexandria. And we'll oftentimes hear about this amazing library down in Alexandria. But what they're really known for and the thing that sticks out about them is their worship of all kinds of different gods. They believed that there were these multiple ways to God, that there was, there was different avenues. If this sounds familiar, they were very much, they would have probably been the people with coexist on their back of their chariots back in the day. <laughs> Roman worship was big. We talked about last week, Smyrna had this temple that was dedicated to Dea Roma uh, long ago, but the first city to build a temple actually devoted to Caesar was Pergamum. 
They developed Pergamum, this, this, this seizure worship that not only, I almost said seizure, seizure worship that literally began to spread throughout the community so different temples began to spring up all over the city. Now what would also be key here is that as long as you worshipped Caesar, you could worship anyone else. So there was also worship of Athena, and you've oftentimes heard about who Athena was. There was also Dionysus. Dionysus is probably better known as Bacchus. It was the god of drinking and frivolity and, and debauchery. But the two gods that kind of stick out in this culture that I think are, are relevant to the text we're going to look at was the first one, which was Asclepios. I'm glad I only had these names, man. I've got my little speech thing that I struggle with, and so when I say Asclepios, it doesn't come out well, but Asclepios. He was the god that was of healing and medicine. Now, what's interesting about this city, they had a famous medical school there, but wrapped up into their science and their learning was also kind of the way that they brought together and mingled together superstition. And in fact, the emblem, if you've ever seen this, of the, of the rod going up and the snakes going around it, that is a representation of Asclepios. Now, what they would do in these temples is you would go to Asclepios' temple and there were all of these non-venomous snakes that were crawling all over the temple. You would go there, you would lay down, and you would sleep there and allow these snakes to crawl over you. I would prefer to die. <laughs> there's, there's women out there going, I'm with you. But literally, they would just sit there, and the whole idea was as that as snakes would crawl over you, the spirit of Asclepios would heal you. So a lot of people, what they do is they connect this idea, and you're going to see this in verse 13 when he talks about this idea of Satan who dwells there and this, where Satan's throne is, that that must have been what, what John was talking about or what Jesus was talking about is that this Asclepios, this, this one, is a representation of Satan, which I don't, I don't personally think that's it. Instead of Asclepios is that also within Pergamum was this massive temple to Zeus that would sit up on top of this gigantic hill that was, that was in Pergamum. It was an absolutely magnificent temple that had this monstrous altar, and that altar actually became shaped in the form of a throne. This temple that was up there was Zeus being the pantheon or the supreme of all the different gods, and it was the shape then took its place on top of the Acropolis or this high hill so that all these gods pointed to one god. In other words, this being the place where Zeus was, if you know anything about Greek and Roman mythology, this was kind of, it kind of was this centerpiece of all the pantheon of gods. Now, this little church then gets planted right in the middle of that. And getting planted in the middle of that, they had to deal with all of the feasts and the festivals that were associated with all these various gods and this worship of Caesar. We don't know how this church got there, other than the fact that probably people down, we learned about in Acts 19, heard the gospel, and they just started going everywhere, and they probably actually followed that line, and that's from how they came to this, have this church planted was what God did in Ephesus. But I think the thing that sticks out most, if you look at verse 13, imagine if Jesus came in and said this to Cornerstone. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Wow. 
I mean, it would be like him looking over at Los Angeles and saying, I know where you dwell. You live on the outskirts of where Satan's throne is. Now, some of you are like, I think that's where Satan's throne is. But I think the weird part that we have in our head is all of the, the wrong thinking that we have about who Satan is. Just today, I was, I was looking for different cartoons on Satan, and we love to caricature Satan. And, and Satan is standing at this, at this doorway, and I still can't remember the two things that were said in the doorway. I meant to go look this up after the last service. But basically, it was um, worse and worser or something like that. And he's standing there with a guy trying to make a decision, and Satan's got his pitchfork and his long tail and his horns, and he says, would you choose already? Now, our problem is, is we think that Satan is somehow ruling in hell. That's not where he's ruling. He is ruling up on this earth in a unique way as the prince of the power of the air, as he's talked about, and he's accomplishing his business. Hell is where he'll be incarcerated for eternity. And in fact, every time we caricature him almost in that little simple way, we miss the fact that he is the most powerful being created by God and he is roaming free and accomplishing his business. God's still in control. Jesus is still on his throne. But this is a serious, serious thing. The satanic power was manifest in there and the throne of Satan was amongst them and somehow... Satan had set up his kingdom and his cartel was operating within the Roman Empire from there. But I love this group of people. It says, I I know you live there. I know this is where you live. Yet you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. In other words, Jesus is looking at him saying, even in the midst of all this melee, you held fast my name, meaning you, you totally stood in relationship with me. You were focused on me. You didn't let anything get in the way of our relationship together. You didn't deny me. You were faithful to me. Not only were you faithful to me, but he says in there that you also did not deny my faith. You didn't deny my message that I gave you. You stood strong amongst even some of these people that probably mocked you and treated you just as one other faith and the many faiths that are out there. You said, no, in the same way that I will not worship Caesar, my Jesus is supreme to all your gods, even to that hill up there with Zeus on there. I'm telling you, he is nothing compared to my Jesus. In fact, he is a figment of your imagination and compared to my Jesus. I stood strong on that. And in fact, it even goes so far that you did it even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. He calls Antipas, he says, my faithful witness. Now, I hardly ever quote Greek at you, but that word witness is actually martus, which later becomes martyr. The idea of a witness was is that you would stand up and testify to something, but Christians, the more and more that they stood up and testified to Jesus Christ, that word martus eventually became, and it got transliterated into English of this very word, eventually you would pay a price for standing up and proclaiming Jesus is Lord or Jesus is King. And so here's this person in the midst of this transition, this word, and here's all these people that refused to deny Jesus. And even in fact, it says, even to the point where he went to death, and and tradition has it that what took place was is there was this gigantic brass bull that they would offer sacrifices in. They would get this brass bull hot, and then they would put sacrifices in it as an offering to whatever deity they were doing it to. Tradition has it that that's where Antipas ended up alive. 
And Jesus said to him, you still stuck with me. You were still faithful. You were still true. You stuck to my name. You stuck to my message. Man, I hear that, and I'm like, what a great church. This crazy church that stood up in the middle of everyone that wouldn't deny Jesus. I'm like, sign me up. I want to go there. But Satan's not dumb. See that little but in verse 14? Don't you hate that word? See, what Satan does is if he can't get us one way, he'll get us another. In fact, what was happening was is that it seems to be all the people that needed to be pushed out of the church were pushed out. And so what Satan was going to do was something so much more crafty. If he couldn't get them through persecution, he was going to get them another way. And it seems what took place is, is he was going to get them through compromise. In fact, the way that he talks about it in verse 14, he says, but I have a few things against you. I'm glad it's just a few. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. The other one he's going to come after this is he's going to talk about this guy named Nicholas or the Nicolaitans. So you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So he's going to lay out one person who is Old Testament character. And this Old Testament character, he's going to explain this Old Testament character so that they understand the way that the Nicolaitans were being deceived by Satan in their time. So he's going to take an old time to explain how it is that was happening to them in their time. So what took place with Balaam? Well, Balaam, what he was, you can find that in Numbers 22, 23, 24, and I think 25 if you want to go to it. And you can kind of study what took place. But the problem with Balaam, or this one who instructed Balak to put this stumbling block before the people of Israel, is that what he did was he came in and he connived and he got the people, he basically got Satan to come in the back door on the people of Israel. See, what took place in kind of short was is that Balaam was this guy that was kind of a prophet for hire. And God, and, and God was working through him in some unique ways, but then Balak found out that this guy had a powerful testimony, he was powerful prophetically, and he hired them to come and to prophesy curse against Israel. Well, every time that he would go and try to prophesy a curse because he wanted to make the money, is that all he could do was bless Israel. And so finally what Balaam did is he comes to Balak and says, look, here's how we need to do it. If you want to get to the people of Israel, we're not going to do it through the front door. We're going to have to come in through the back door. So what you need to do is you need to bring the Moabite women and bring them amongst all the Israelite men. And when you get them amongst the Israelite men, you need to then be sexually promiscuous with them, intermarry with them. And once you get in that way, you've got the people of Israel. And the sad part about it was it worked. Pretty soon, the people of Israel were slowly working towards their gods. They'd been swayed away. These women, as they intermarried with all the Israelites, slowly started to sway them into the ways of Balak and their people. The doctrine of Balaam that he was talking about here slowly worked its way in, and when it worked its way in, they became absolutely defeated. Now, what he's going to do is talk about this idea in the same way he's going to share with them, this is what the Nicolaitans are doing to you. 
Nicolaitans were this group of people that were founded by a guy named Nicholas. We're not sure which Nicholas it was. It could have been Acts 6, a, a guy that was a former leader in Jerusalem that kind of went off the deep end and, and he started to kind of get people swayed off over into this religion. But at the bottom line of this religion was this idea that this body dies anyways, so you know what? And Jesus will forgive. I can just come to him and ask me for forgiveness of sins no matter what. So I can practice the most heinous sins, ask Jesus to forgive me, because this body doesn't matter anyways. Sound familiar? And he slowly began to suck people off into some of the most heinous sins. Don't worry, Jesus will forgive you. He taught a form of cheap grace. This idea that somehow it doesn't matter how we live our lives, that we weren't saved to be different. They taught that when Jesus died, he bought them from freedom for their own selfish means in this world, and he even probably used scripture to be able to do it. See, this is the thing, and this is where I really want to try to hit home in our world. Satan is after all of us. Now, maybe not him personally, because I don't know any of us are that big in this room. But if he can't get us one way, he'll keep going until he gets us another way. And in fact, one of the things that I think that we learn from this text, especially, is that Satan loves to take things that are good and begin to slowly sway us away from that thing being good, using that good thing, get us focused on that good thing, to where we're now focused on that good thing, not on Jesus, and this good thing actually can become an idol. Take, for example, one of the things that he talks about in here, which is marriage. Marriage is a great thing. In fact, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2, the only time that God says it's not good is when he looked at Adam and says, it's not good for you to be alone. He knew that men could not be alone. And so he created woman, Isha, because he needed straightened out. I'm kidding. But in comes Isha, and finally, this first relationship after this relationship with God is this man and this woman, and God said, it is very good. Marriage is a wonderful thing. But as a former youth pastor, one of the things that breaks my heart more than anything is I would always see slowly these young people that would start to fall in love with an unbeliever. Usually it wasn't in high school. Sometimes it was, but they would go off to college and they would meet Mrs. or Mr. Wright and they would just come back telling me, oh, he or she is so wonderful. I love him. He's amazing. That's great. Where'd you meet? It doesn't matter. (laughs) He's just wonderful. That's great. So you following Jesus with him? Well, not exactly. <laughs> and Satan craftily comes in and just starts to pull that young man or that young woman away. And even sometimes you know this because some of you in this room, it's happened to you. You have married an unbeliever. And it's two competing realities. What was a, a good thing that God created for us to enjoy, we took and took advantage of it and used it in a way that wasn't intended by God. And oh, the pain that comes from that not only marriage, but he talks about feasts and festivals. I believe we are created as people 
to celebrate. In fact, you guys have always heard me say this. I think Christians can sometimes be the most dour, sour people on the planet. And actually, we should be the happiest, most joyful people on the planet. If anybody should celebrate, it's people that are no longer experiencing death, the second death, forever. Man, we should be the most joyful people on the planet. We should eat our food different knowing, going, no way, this food is going to taste so much better in eternity. Especially those of you that just got married. Your wife maybe can't cook now, but that's okay. The wives are like, how do you know? We should go to party. Christians should party. Not like the world parties, though. See, the world parties in such a way that we want to forget things. We want to somehow get ourselves caught up in this happy moment. We don't have to lose the moment because we aren't defined by this moment. We're defined, this is just Motel 6. We're aliens. We're strangers. We're just passing through. We're defined by our future home. So therefore, we can enjoy this world in the way that God intended it. Not only that, but even sex. God intended that sex, and I I don't know if there's any young ones in here, so I'll be careful, but it would be a good thing. God intended it, not only that we would be able to procreate, make new human beings, but if you've ever read Song of Solomon, he means for us to enjoy it. He means for it to be joyed inside of the safety and the, the goodness of marriage, inside of a solid commitment to one another. But our problem is, is we've taken and we've messed with sexuality. In fact, as you look at most TV, movies, and things like that, it's just this weird, awkward, selfish thing where I, it's all for me and my pleasure and my wants and miss the fact that sex is designed not for me, but for the person God gave me, an opportunity to serve them. Not only that, but even then we take something like homosexuality, this thing we're not supposed to talk about, And anymore, if you watch TV, who are the funny, enjoyable people on TV? Homosexuals. I mean, you sit there watching it going, man, heterosexuals are boring. And we've made them funny and all kinds of things, and they probably are. But Satan is so crafty how he starts to shape our thinking. We're even taking something like homosexually not designed to be happening at all. In fact, it wasn't designed in the least. We've taken what God's intention of a man and a woman to be married, and we've ripped it apart. In fact, I had a professor in seminary that always used to say to us, he always used to say, I will not let myself be entertained by anything that Jesus died for. Let me read that again. I will not let myself be entertained by anything that Jesus died for. We laugh at it slowly. We get desensitized to these things. And again, I'm not saying we're not supposed to watch certain things or do certain things. I'm just saying, isn't it amazing? We can take good things and they can slowly desensitize us and make it so wrong. TV. Oh my gosh. Is it bad? No. Is it a time sucker? Yes. We'll sit there for hours. The other day I came in and I caught my son reaching, watching something really simple. You know, it was a cartoon. And here's my son. <laughs> I go in front of the TV and I'm like this. And he's like. <laughs> oh. Alcohol. Alcohol was something that was designed by God. In fact, most references to it in the inside of the Bible, is a very, it has actually a positive reference to it. But what did we do? 
We took it as a means of escapism, and the Bible says we got drunk. In fact, I know within this room right now, there's a lot of people that are caught up in probably secret sin in which it started off, you were looking at the Bible and says, oh, alcohol is good, it's okay for me to do it. And then you start going down that path and as you go down that path, you move away from what God intended for us to enjoy and you made it an evil thing by getting drunk and the Bible promises that when you start to get drunk, it leads to all other kinds of sin, debauchery. Drugs. It's another thing. And I know anytime any of us have had to go to the doctor, we're thankful for drugs. But right now, the most abused form of drug is actually prescribed medication. What was intended to help us walk through a time of pain, we slowly begin to begin to rely upon that instead of relying upon Jesus Christ. And we begin to take those things, and pretty soon we're just caught off. Internet. Oh my goodness. See, some of you in here, you love Facebook, don't you? And then I've heard there's a new one out. What's it called? My wife knows. What's it called? What? No, it's got some... Sandy, of course, I knew she would know. She's trying to figure it out. Pinterest. And like I see these women talk about it. It's like, oh, yeah, I sat there for like two or three hours trying to figure it out. Two or three hours? After a while, it's just this good thing that was intended to be enjoyed, and we just slowly get sucked into the Internet. So much so, we're like, people are, I swear, you know, I I have Facebook, but it's like, there's these one people, you know, they post all the time. And there's everything in me wants to go there. I don't, but everything is like, go in there and go, nobody cares. (laughs) Gadgetry. Oh, we love our gadgets, don't we? Man, I remember when I got my iPhone, it was like, (gasps) (sighs) 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 (sighs)
That's why we started EBC. As we saw all these people going off to these various Christian schools and coming out with tens of thousands of dollars of debt, and when they came out with it, they couldn't go do what and oftentimes God wanted them to do because they were owned by their debt. How many of you heard this one just a few years ago? A home loan is good debt. Still believe it? See, Satan is it's not that the ownership of a home is bad. But boy, the ways in which we went about trying to get it. And then Satan so has us trapped. Shopping. Is shopping evil? The answer is yes. (laughs) Oh. I've seen so many different people that have come in after running up their credit cards, thousands and thousands of dollars of debt from shopping. And I'm not just talking women. Men have this weird thing for shoes. I'm serious. But he brings us to verse 16. All those things that Satan slowly uses us to get away from him, he says, therefore, repent. Because getting caught up even on good things, even on things that are good, and I'm not even talking about obviously things that are bad we're not supposed to get caught up on, but even these things that are used to slowly begin to take us away and slowly move us away from God, he says that is idolatry and you need to come before God and say, I repent. A few days ago, I have a son and he's such a boy. The door's open, we're going to go out to the van, I've got the baby in the baby carrier, and he starts just sprinting out the door, and I have this weird feeling like he's not going to stop. And I look out ahead, and there's a leaf, because he is such a boy, of course a leaf in the street he's going to go after, and I remember just watching him, and I'm seeing him running for that leaf, and what did I do? Josiah, stop! And he went, And he he spun around and looked at me and he said, what? I said, get back here. See, repentance, what it is, is God coming into this group of people and saying, stop. You're going the wrong way. See, some of you in this room are on the edge of having a marital affair. And how it's going to start, it's going to start so devious. It's going to start so innocent. You're going to suddenly be around a man or a woman, and you're going to care for them. And in caring for them, you're going to start to build this slow relationship together where in your head you've justified it, where you're just caring for this woman or just caring for this man. And slowly, it's going to begin to evolve. And in fact, it's almost the, the, the way in which this affair starts to take place. Even you'll convince yourself spiritually that it's okay. And pretty soon, it's okay to be alone together with another woman. And pretty soon, it's okay to slowly start to drift off and, and to have conversations. And then pretty soon, it's okay to hold hands. And then there's these next moving. It just kind of keeps moving and evolving till finally this thing comes around you. And in James 1, 13 through 16, it says, it eventually traps you and squashes you. I've even had people in my office say that before they had sex with this person they're having an affair with, they would pray. But that's how crafty Satan is. And I promise you, it's something that applies to every one of us in this room. Nobody escapes it. He'll get you through hurt 
He'll get you through brokenness. He'll get you through bitterness. He'll get you through all kinds of different things. And once he has you and he starts to take you down that path with him, he has you and you have a God. And this is the point about repent that I think we miss. We have a God that cries out to us, stop, turn and go the other way. That's what repentance is. It is the call of a God that loves us. He's passionate about us. He died for us. And in fact, when he says this next statement after it, is that if you don't, he says, if not, I will come to you soon and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. Who's them? The idea is, is these people that are swaying my people away from me. I mean, can you imagine just for a second, you're standing there and you're looking out your window and you see your little boy go out there and there's a man that comes up and he opens his door and you can tell that he's trying to sway you. He's trying to sway your son into his car. What would you do? I would come out there and I would come out screaming and yelling and I probably would only be able to kick his tires because I'm a lover, not a fighter. But I just, I mean, it would be anything in the world to save my son from this one. See, when Jesus says this, we sometimes think, wow, he's kind of hard. Really? Is he kind of hard or does he love us? He's passionate about us. And this statement has everything to do with, if you all don't deal with it within your church, I'm going to come to you and I'm going to war against those that are swaying you away. In fact, when he says the sword of his mouth, the idea is, and it's graphic, but I will chop them to pieces. This is how passionate I am about my kids. Now that brings us to a serious thing within how we talk about this. There's some of you in this room, and like I talked about before, you're on the edge of an extramarital affair, and I'm calling you. I'm going to be a pastor to all of you and say, no matter what you're doing, repent and return to Jesus Christ. Don't justify it. In fact, if you're in a relationship right now where either the man or the woman is trying to justify to you, you should continue to move forward in this relationship. It is a lie from the pit of hell, and I'm calling you as one who loves you to return to God. There's some of you in this room with secret addictions. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's porn. Maybe there's even some of you in here, and the one thing I've found with women is is that they get caught up in this weird, awkward Barbie dream world in which they, they think that somehow they're supposed to have this wonderful thing, and pretty soon their husband and their life aren't providing that thing, and so they begin to find their Barbie dream world over here, and they meet this guy, and they see this guy, and they're infatuated with this guy because he appears to be everything that their husband is not, and I'm calling you as your pastor saying, repent, turn, and come the other way. In fact, this passage really has to do with this idea that we're to do that with one another. We're actually to judge one another. Now, people will be like, hey, whoa, whoa, don't judge lest you be judged. Yeah, that's true on one side for the arrogant people, but once you've dealt with the plank in your eye, you're supposed to judge one another, not because you don't love one another, but because you do love one another. And the idea is is that, you look, you want me to come to you. You don't want the judgment of Jesus to come to you. It's better to see my face than his face. And so oftentimes what happens is is we don't confront one another like we should because we're like, oh, that's so mean-spirited. Well, it could be, or it could be one of the most loving things that you could do with somebody. Husbands, when's the last time you looked at an area of your wife's life and just said, honey, I think we need to talk about this? 
or husband or wife with your husband, with your friends? How often have you overlooked stuff in their life? And you think in your head, oh, I just don't want to cause problems. Let me tell you something. Being honest with somebody sometimes causes problems. And in fact, we have this weird thing inside of all of us that we think that we're supposed to stand back and do nothing. That's love? But I love how Jesus does this. He says this statement in 17, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, there's some of you out there that no matter what I say to you about secret sin in your life or things that you're even entertaining or things that Satan might be seeking to do in your life, some of you aren't going to hear me, but those that hear me, the Spirit says to the churches, the one who conquers, the one who, who hears this message and deals with these things that are drawing them away from Jesus, he says, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. See, this idea of hidden manna, what it was is, is that manna was something that rained down upon the people of Israel. They didn't have anything to eat, and so it was a bread of sorts. It probably was like more of a, a honey, uh, honey do, uh, type of bread, and, and it came out of heaven, and it tasted good. And when it calls it the secret manna, what they would do is, is after a while, God said, I want you to keep some of that manna, and I want you to take it, and I want you to put it inside of the ark as a reminder of my faithfulness. See, this secret manna that he's providing here, I really believe what he's talking about here is, is that this God will be faithful to us to the end. He who started a good work in you is going to complete it. No matter what's going on in your life right now, the promise that those of us that know and love Jesus have is that he's faithful. We can trust him. And how far can we trust him? Here's the next thing he says, I will give him a white stone. Now, what in the world is that? The interesting little historical bit on this stone is there was always different things given to somebody that was a victor in a particular event. And so if somebody won like the marathon, they were given this, not only this wreath around their head, and they were sometimes then given them flowers and different things to show they won, but the other thing that they were given was a white stone. And what the white stone represented was it was access to the feast later that would celebrate all the victors of these various games. And you couldn't get in unless you had your little white stone. But once you came up to that victor's feast and you showed them your white stone and the name written on it was generally the event at which you won, you would show it to them at the, at the gate and you got your little backstage pass, your backstage rock, and you would go in and you would present this to everyone as the one who was the victor. It was your entrance into the grand victory of, this, of, this, of, of the festival that was going on. When he says this, he's saying, look, I will be faithful. I will get you from point A to point B. And at the end of point B of this faithfulness will be this white rock, your entrance into the final resting place of all of us that are followers of Jesus Christ. And the culmination will be the marriage feast of the Lamb. Can you imagine what that feast is going to be like? We're all standing there as this group of people. Finally, Satan has been conquered. Sin's been done away with. Death is no more. All the people that we hadn't seen for years and years because they had passed away, suddenly they're gathering with us around this gigantic banquet feast. And the very one that died for us, Jesus Christ, is standing at the head of this massive feast. And he's looking at all of us and saying, welcome. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, 
please don't ever forget that. It's worth it. I know there's all these things in this life that are clamoring for us. And there's all kinds of good things that are out there. They're great things. And all things were given to us to enjoy. I fully believe that. But even the good things can start to sway us away from Jesus Christ. And if there's anything like that in your life right now, I'm pleading with you as your pastor, deal with those things that are in your life. Please don't swing over into legalism, this idea that I'm going to swing over here into this world that, that somehow because I'm doing it, I'm safe and I'm secure because Satan so wants to get us over there. It's not that. I just, I love this church so much. But I see in my life and I see in all of your lives so many things that are sitting there keeping us away from fully enjoying Jesus. And so what I want to do is I want to bring the worship team up right now. And what I'd like you to do while they're coming up is that, and I rarely ask people to do this, but could everybody just bow their heads and close their, close their eyes for, for us to finish? Before we exit this room, in your life right now, what things are competing to draw you away from Christ? What things are competing with your love for Jesus? For some of you, you could be caught up in some very evil things. I'm telling you, Jesus is here in this moment, in this place, not calling us to beat ourselves up. He's calling for us to repent because he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's to turn and go the other way. Maybe you've gotten consumed in work. And it's just slowly killing your love for Jesus, even work, a good thing created by God. Maybe there's things that have happened in your life, whatever they might be, that those things just seem so insurmountable and so huge, and they've they've slowly begun to take your vision off of Jesus and onto those events in your life, whatever it might be. Just ask God to forgive you for getting your eyes off of Him. And now just in the quiet of it, ask God to reveal to you, is there anything in your life right now that you're doing that could be that back door in your life? some 
of you in this room that you know you need to go and you need to talk to someone about their sin. We put it off because we don't want to cause waves. We put it off because we're afraid that we're going to come across as arrogant or proud. And in a weird way, what we put off is we can put off being loving to that person. There's somebody that you need to go talk to. Precious name.